Welcome to the podcast, And Then She Said. If you're new here, this is a podcast where I talk to people about stories that make them feel seen or resonate with them in some way. Every episode is a way for two or more non-experts to share our views and experiences and, hopefully, learn a bit more about each other. We are all experts of our own experience. Blakesley. And I'm Carrie Kirby, Ellie's best friend. We are talking today about Julie Andrews' second memoir called Homework, uh, which Carrie recommended to me. I feel like you texted me and you were like, hi, read this. I cried. <laughs> That's <laughs> usually how my book recommendations go, yeah. as I'll, I'll tell someone, hello, you must read this. It changed my life. so yes that's how Ellie found out about this and I was like come talk to me about it and I said yes yeah so her first memoir home talks about her childhood and like growing up doing vaudeville and the first three shows she did on Broadway which were Camelot My Fair Lady and The Boyfriend The Boyfriend and so this memoir picks up she covers that all again in the introduction And then it picks up with when she moved to Hollywood to be in Mary Poppins because Walt Disney himself came to see her on Broadway and was like, hello, please come star in my film. And she was like, oh, I'm about to have a baby though. And he was like, "Mm, we'll wait. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, off she went. So it, it starts in 63 when they moved to Hollywood and covers like 30 years over her super active career. It's so good. One of the things that we both love about this is that it talks about that work-life balance. And she talks about her relationship with her first husband and then their decision to be separated and then get a divorce. And then her relationship with her longtime husband, Blake Edwards, who directed Pink Panther, for anyone who doesn't know. And like all of their children. And and then (laughs) as well as her career and everything that's going on. It's so good. Yeah, it really is. It covers so much, but so thoroughly without being long-winded. It, it's so well-written as well. Um, that's another reason that this book was so enjoyable for me was because it was, it was well-written and it was thoughtful and it was honest. Oh my gosh, that's why I cried so much. It was just so honest with her own struggles with so many different topics, balancing work, life, uh, motherhood, and acting, uh, performing. It also covers, you know, personal relationships and how those are impacted by fame and busy schedules, like Ellie was saying with her first husband, Tony, and how that made things more complicated. And then it talks about, you know, her constant struggle with feeling good enough, which I think was the biggest theme I noticed because as an actor, that's the first thing that you think of. You step on stage and you think, am I going to be good enough? I think that's why everyone's so nervous, but for someone as well-known and prolific and talented, just so disgustingly talented, (laughs) to hear that she also doubts herself after selling out shows, tours in different countries, multiple awards, and and thousands of shows on a Broadway stage, and she still is like, you know, I don't, I didn't like that note that I sang, (laughs) and to, to hear that was just 
oh, the honesty just brought me to tears because it was so relatable. She was so down to earth and, and I felt like she was talking to me over a cup of tea rather than in a book that millions of people have read. Yeah. Well, that was, so for context, Carrie and I are both actors. We do other things as well, but we have both been actors for years uh, <laughs> all through school. And we both majored in theater when we were in college. So, so many things that you said there. That was her little topic sentence. That's her little like the overview. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the struggle with not being enough. She includes excerpts from her journals from the time that she's talking about all through the book. And I was so struck with how similar those journal entries sound to my journal entries and being like, oh, this is Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews, who like, she already was successful as an actor before she got started in Hollywood. The idea of thinking you're not successful when you've done three Broadway shows, you've been a lead in three Broadway shows, and still being like, I am not good enough to do this, is so validating. So, so validating. Yes. Yes. Validating is a great word for it. It made me feel like, you know, I've had training and, and she talked about throughout her, her own struggle with being like, because she didn't have, you know, a degree from Juilliard or something that she was not good enough because she didn't have that sort of stamp of approval, I guess. And so it kind of seems like throughout her career, she was striving for that approval. She, she talks about how between shows, when she would do two shows a day or, you know, she couldn't figure out why it was so hard to go from one show to the next. And like she was saying, she wrote it down in her journal. She said, okay, write it down, pin it like a fly on the wall. That tiny dot at my core threatens to grow and explode inside me. Depression. Where does it come from? I feel it lingering, lurking, never far from the surface. And oh, it is black. I keep thinking that it's chemical, menopausal perhaps, but it's been waiting around for years, I think. A stalking shadow from my vaudeville days. I want to catch it, look at it, wipe it clean. It is to do with the deepest me. Yeah. And there is so much in that. <laughs> A little excerpt right there, but Ooh. it sums up so much of, you know, her struggle, I think, because it, it talks about like that little tiny portion that just eats away at you, you know, lingering from her first early performance days in vaudeville, where again, that was such an intimate show. It's so with the audience and, you know, depends on their reaction. Her success would depend on their approval. And, you know, she wants to wipe it clean. She says she doesn't want to feel like that anymore the concept of the deepest me being brought out in her performance is amazing. I love that because it is, you know, you give yourself to the audience completely. You just lay it all out there and you hope that they like it. You pray that they like it. And yeah, uh, but, but that it's not, it's not your job as a, as a performer to decide how people receive your performance. You all worry so much about being good enough and doing the role justice and doing the story justice but it's not up to us to decide whether we've achieved that. I think every actor could go on stage and feel like they were not on it and they didn't do a good job. And in that audience could be someone who is completely and totally moved and taken in by that story. And that's, that's the validity of it. It is about what the right. audience, all you can do is go out and put yourself out there and let people respond how they do. That insecurity of not being good enough is what keeps us working. That's what drives us to keep trying to be better because there isn't a like achievement of you made it as an artist. There's only continuing to work. 
Exactly. And she even talks about, you know, what is success? Right at the end of her book, she says, what is success? Is it the pleasure in doing the work or the way it's received afterward? The latter is ephemeral. The doing is everything. Yeah. And, and I love that. She just like continues to say mind-bogglingly wonderful things. And my book is littered with little bookmarks and stickies and highlights and pencils because I was just eating up every word she had to say. It's so true though. You know, that is the success is in being able to do it. The doing is everything. And yeah. it's true. You know, that is what gives you the purpose, what gives you, what gives it meaning. And that's, that's why we do it is the joy in doing it. Mm-hmm. Nobody who's becoming an actor just for the applause and the fame and the money makes it very far. Or if they do, they don't make it for the right reasons and they don't love it in the same way. Exactly. And she made it, I feel, because she, she had a strong work ethic, you know? Her mom yeah. told her when she was in vaudeville, you know, don't complain about anything. Uh, no one cares. Don't start pulling rank or talking about how good you are. There's always someone who can do what you do better than you. So get on with it and you'll be respected so much more. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of brutal honesty is just like seared into my brain at this point. Like, ooh, it's so true. But also she says over and over again, how immensely lucky she is. And that I was watching an interview with her and her daughter, Emma, who helped her write this book. They've written like 30 books together because she writes children's stories as well, which like, that's amazing. Um, And they they have like a family saying of like, wow, how lucky we are. Because Julie Andrews says it all the time, which I think is also valid. Like so much of quote unquote success in Hollywood comes from luck as much as it does from work ethic and talent. Absolutely. And it's interesting the thing you brought up about her mom saying, nobody wants to hear you complain, which like is a little relevant because she spent her whole childhood trying to keep everybody happy. I mean right. she had depressed mother, alcoholic stepfather, like her parents were divorced so she, and her siblings were spread all over the place and everybody everybody in her family was struggling with something and she really took it on herself to be supporting everyone emotionally and financially and she kind of didn't start to process that until she started therapy when she was living in Hollywood which truly her descriptions of therapy are so amazing <laughs> she talks about in her first her first week of therapy she just cried constantly through all of the sessions and her therapist said something like maybe the reason you're crying all the time is because the cavalry has arrived you know the enemy has attacked the wagons have drawn into a circle all seems lost suddenly the cavalry comes over the hill the relief is so huge that it's safe to let go to cry and she she says like doing all of this trying to keep her family together and happy had generated such powerful emotions that she had buried in order to survive. Ooh. Ooh. Light reading. Light reading. Yeah. She's so honest about it. Right. And it's and it can be painful, I'm sure, as someone, you know, with the level of notoriety that she has, to be able to say these things, to talk about being in therapy, because I think for older people it still has such a stigma. Yeah. I bet it it was not it was not widely done as it is right now with young people and especially with you know their parents and stuff right now and I think that culture of like self-examination is starting to really become a way of life now rather than just oh that person's in therapy and we don't talk about it now it's like no we are all working on ourselves and that's something to be proud of that's something to hide and be ashamed of and everybody I love therapy 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it says, I love the phrase that she put it into, you know, I did recognize how fortunate I was to have been given the gift of my voice. And because of that, so many extraordinary opportunities. But now, having arrived at what would seem to be a safe haven in my professional life, my marriage was in trouble, meaning her marriage with Tony, her first husband. And I see later on in her book, she discusses her relationship and how the problems came up with her second husband. Um, but some of them were things that she was still working on from her first marriage, things that she personally was still working on with herself and things with her family. And, and it just shows how much she clung to that sort of the self-examination, but also the lifeline of her, her therapist, her psychoanalyst, as she calls him. Yeah. She and Tony were childhood pen pals and childhood sweethearts. And they got married, I think she was like 24. And he's a designer. He, he designed Mary Poppins. And they, but they're both their careers took off at the same time, but she was so primarily in, in LA and he was more in New York and London because he was doing stage. And that's that, like that separation between them was a lot of why their marriage started to fall apart some. Oh, another quote from therapy. I just have to, I have to read this whole section. One day, the doctor asked me what I wanted most out of life. Oh, to be loved, I suppose, and to be healthy, to do something well. I struggled to articulate what I actually did want. Don't you want to be happy? That sounds like a rather selfish thing to say, I replied. I want, I want. There are so many people who have so much less than I have. He surprised me by smacking his thigh with an open palm. Good God, woman. Do you think you were put into this world to be unhappy? Oh, uh, well, don't you think it is your God-given right to seek happiness, no matter what, providing you don't hurt anyone along the way? Ridiculous as it may sound, I'd been so focused on keeping everyone else happy that I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Which, like... There, I feel like so much of being a young adult is figuring out what you actually want. I, in my life right now, feel like there's so much that I'm becoming aware of that I've absorbed from people I admire. Things like something that I pursue because a teacher once told me I was good at it. There are, there are so many influences that we absorb when we're growing up, but all throughout life, really. And it's so hard to sort out what it is I want versus what it is other people want for me. And I love those people, so I want to make them happy. Um, and I just, I'm like, ooh, right, cool. I relate to this bit in that it's, it's fine to pursue my own happiness based on what I want and not what other people want for me. Right. It's so easy to fall into that trap of, oh, well, everyone says I'm good at it, so why shouldn't I do it? I mean, I even had that similar struggle, you know, in choosing a school and figuring out what I wanted to do for college, you know, and it felt like the only thing I was good at that I could do was theater. And even then, I, I had no faith in my own abilities. So it was, it was very difficult to learn over those four years that, yeah, I, I was good at it and I loved it. But the way that it was being portrayed to me as a career path wasn't what I wanted. Not that I didn't want theater, it was that I didn't want to lose sight of the art. The success is in the doing it, as she said. You know, the, the whole point is to do it yeah. and to find the success in theater. And that you don't want to get lost in the business and the politics of it. 
Absolutely. And that was the part that I struggled most, most with as a collegiate student. Yeah. That's that's what I struggle most with too, is I, because I've been in grad school the last couple of years, I haven't been doing as much performing because that's not what my program's been centered around. And I now feel like I'm so removed from it that I, I, between hearing all the stories from my friends who are working actors and they're the way that they talk about going to six auditions in a week and still getting nothing and then feeling like I'm so removed from it that like, oh no, what if I go back and I can't do it anymore? Oh, absolutely. And I think that the way that she's so honest and talking about her struggles here, Julie Andrews, it's, it's, it's just so wonderful. I mean, she talks about a time, like you were saying, they talk about a time they saw in to go see the great, singer Luciano Pavarotti and they discuss how like the beauty of his voice made me tearful and filled us both with awe she says this is a very important paragraph for me I think um after the program ended Blake asked me what I felt made great singing so moving to listen to I think when singing one exposes one's soul I said how so I struggled to explain dancers can look at a mirror a writer can look at a page and the painter can look at a canvas and see their work reflected back at them but singers can only hear and feel what they're doing. After all the training, technique, use of breath, and placement of sound, it boils down to an emotional response to music and lyrics and the way they touch one's heart and soul. And I just, oh, I sat there with that page open in my lap for <laughs> several minutes <laughs> just to... <laughs> to kind of process it because it's so true. It's so true. You know, you, you don't have something like a canvas to look at when you're done. You just, I mean, actually I get performance anxiety blackouts. So sometimes I don't even remember what happened. It happens to me. I, I will lose the words that I'm saying. I will literally forget what I'm doing mid song, which is <laughs> a tragically unhelpful quality <laughs> to have. <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a singer and an artist because <laughs> you don't want to mess up right <laughs> but you're so stressed about doing it well for everyone that the words just leave and and I've learned how to you know uh, go out there with confidence and and one thing that I heard in this book was a quote that her singing teacher told her Madame Styles Allen and she said the amateur works until he can get it right the professional works until he cannot get it wrong. Oh, my Uncle Don said that to me. He was my music teacher for a bunch of my childhood, and he said that all the time. And I just, it's so correct. It is. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And I, I've noticed I can go back and think through all of my voice lessons and be like, okay, and that I was an amateur there. I was an amateur there. I was an amateur there. Because I wasn't rehearsing it until I couldn't get it wrong. Now, for me, that was my junior recital. I had it down pat. I was memorized a month before the whole thing happened. I mean, I was ready to go. I was like, can this be over already? Because I knew it inside out, upside down, backwards, forwards. I'd been planning it for two and a half years. And then I got to my senior recital, which I'd only been thinking about for six months. And I felt like I had nowhere. I had, I had nothing. I felt like I had absolutely nothing. And it was an hour long senior recital. And I was floundering and floundering and floundering. And if I could go back, I would definitely impress that upon myself, my younger self. I would say, okay, you know what? This is the most important thing to you right now. This is you. You get to share your soul with the audience. And don't you want to 
do that as honestly and truthfully and as well as you possibly can. And, and that is just, um, that quote just spoke to me. Oh my God, on millions of levels. Um, and, and I think that that is, <laughs> if I could get that tattooed on my forehead, I would. Yeah. So the coolest thing I find is the way Julie talks about other people's talent. She worships other people in this book. She thinks all of her leading men, all of her, her idols just inspire her so much and who give her like the inspiration to work harder and to, to seek better training. And, you know, she always feels um, embarrassed compared to them in her mind, of course, going back to self-examination as an actor. Um, she always feels like, you know, she's just scrambling, learning on the job without any training and all oh, these people are so you know well versed in everything and so she's always going to them for advice i love this one passage where um she says on one of my trips to london to visit blake her second husband he and i went to see shirley mclean whose act was currently the toast of the town at the palladium we went backstage afterward and showered her with praise and admiration i asked shirley if she had any secrets to help me overcome the anxiety i still felt when i made a first entrance in concert it was one thing to hide behind a character in a play or musical but while appearing as myself, I felt awkward enough and self-conscious. Julie, she said, I just choose a persona to play. Will I be the gracious hostess, the comedian, the vivacious dancer? It's all part of the act, and once you've decided on your role, it's a lot easier. I vowed to remember her words. She talks even as a seasoned actress. I mean, she is, this is after her time as um, Maria in Sound of Music, and she is still trying to figure out how to be a professional actor. And I think that is amazing. It's heartening to think that someone who, you know, someone you automatically think of when you think of grace and poise and elegance and talent has just so many moments of self-consciousness and self-doubt. So that just really stuck out to me as well as another huge teaching, heartwarming moment. Yeah, and that idea of picking a character or, or an aspect of yourself to play is like, it makes total sense. I can't imagine that anybody could be 110% their vulnerable self while <laughs> performing in front of an audience. I just cannot imagine being able to do that. Right? How, like truly how, how, how would you do it? How would you even do that? Yeah. She, she talks about that whole, the, her struggles with vulnerability in the beginning when she's working with like Rock Hudson. She's like, oh my gosh, these movie stars working with Christopher Plummer on The Sound of Music. She's like, he's incredibly trained. Um, he's just an amazing person. She's gushing and gushing about her co-stars. He's a professional Shakespearean actor. Like he was like, he knew his shit. And Sound of Music was the third film she did. She did Mary Poppins and then the Americanization of Emily and then The Sound of Music. And when she was working on The Sound of Music, the other two hadn't come out yet. She was still, nobody knew who she was. I cannot imagine being like, my background's in vaudeville. Here's my leading man. He is a seasoned Shakespearean actor. It would feel like something like me trying to play opposite like Benedict Cumberbatch is essentially how I was picturing it. <laughs> <laughs> and the ludicrousness of that to me, I absolutely I understand where she's coming from you know me and my community theater background just singing my whole entire life because I love it and then all of a sudden here you go just go be a star everywhere <laughs> I can't imagine I cannot imagine but she is just glowing with praise for other people's talents 
Dick Van Dyke and she became lifelong friends. Yeah. Carol Burnett and she did their first um, special together, Radio City Music Hall, and they became lifelong friends. She said when she became pregnant with her oldest daughter that Carol Burnett was the first person she told besides her husband. I know. And can you <laughs> can you imagine that kind of relationship with just utter talent? And and oh my God, it's just wonderful to see that you know there's no competition. It's just sheer admiration for everyone trying to stick it out the craziness of Hollywood yeah it was so wholesome yeah and and the admiration for everybody else doing their thing and doing the thing that they're really good at one of the other things um she writes about being in therapy she says another day I was brainstorming alternative careers that might appeal to me I'm used about being a pianist a painter a botanist even a newscaster you could do those things, the doctor replied. And if you were willing to wait 20 years or so, it's possible you would become very good at them. But you already do one thing very well. It would seem a shame to waste that gift and take away the pleasure it gives to others. But I've always had to work so hard at it, I stammered. I don't know if I really love singing. There was a pause. And then very quietly, he said, maybe you love it too much? His words hung in the air for a moment. Then the dam burst and I exploded into tears once again. He was right, of course. I realized then that singing had become such a part of me, was so profoundly ingrained in my soul that if the wonder and the joy of it were ever taken away, I might not survive. And I just, that, I think that that's so resonant for all artists is that when you find something that makes your heart sing like that, for want of better words. <laughs> Quite literally, it makes your heart sing and it's, it's what you want to do. And Especially with the whole business side of it of like, oh no, what if you flop? Which like she talks about films that she and her husband Blake worked on that flopped. Like the first film they worked on together flopped. She says in an interview, she jokes that like, it's amazing they stayed together after that. That goes back to the work-life balance discussions she's having. She's making movies with her husband and, and she talks about her trepidation at doing that at first. You know, yeah. she was like, I have no idea if this is a good idea or not, you yeah. know, but maybe it will be. He was a writer and a director and an editor. That's how he worked on all of his films. But they both understand that that's how, that's how it works. You're never gonna just have an upward trend in your career forever. After starting with Mary Poppins and Sound of Music, how are you going to keep going up constantly? Dear God. Oh, another thing that she said in this interview about being an artist is like therapy. You open a door and then there's another door and then there's another door. And she said, like, I'm curious by nature. And there's always something more to learn. And I think that's, I think that's true. Like, both as an actor and in your life and in therapy and in your relationships and how you interact with people. Like there is always more to learn. This is like, you think you have cracked the case and you open the case and then inside there's a smaller case. And you're like, oh no, more to work on. Too many cases, too many cases. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that that is also, you know, art is a form of therapy and I think for, Blake, you know, he decided that it was going to be a wonderful idea for him to start writing a film 
a personal film, an independent film, um, basically based on their life. He essentially wrote, he wrote a, a movie called That's Life. It is just about them. It is literally an autobiographical, basically, an autobiographical um, movie. And he wrote it with his therapist's help. Yep. And, he, and they all star in it. The whole family's in it. They film it in their house. It was wild, the way that they managed to do this. And then what he, what she says is, um, you know, we, we all talk together and, and she said it amazed how he could just turn on his grief and rage in a demonstration for Jack, the guy who was playing the lead character based on Blake, you know, suddenly just becoming the way he had been in life. And, and she was floored by that. And then he asks her to do this monologue after they've been having some, you know, marital problems based on his own personal issues and addictions and, you know, all of his struggles. He was addicted um, to painkillers. He tells her to improvise a monologue where she, like, lets him have it, which she'd never actually done in real life. Like, she was always, you know, they'd talk about it, but she never, like, let all of her frustration and everything out at him. So he tells her to improvise a monologue, and she did one take, and he was like, yup, that's it. Yep. She said, she said, now, because the film was so autobiographical, my husband was giving me free reign to tap into all my frustrations of the past year and vent them. It was surreal and cathartic, and the words simply poured out of me. After just one take, Blake said, print it. (laughs) When I questioned him, he smiled tenderly and said, trust me. And that is, that is an example of not art imitating life, but art being life like that is their life and she you know because it was probably so honest so powerful so heartfelt and just to the point so intense that he was like that's all we need that's it that's what we wanted yeah and you don't want to try and recreate that like I totally get why he was like one take don't think about what you just said but like the way that she talks about their relationship is so beautiful because she does talk about all of those struggles that they faced, but also there's so much really lovely that she talks about. There's a description of the two of them sitting in their living room writing together and that he's working on a script and she's working on a children's book that she's writing for her stepdaughter, Jenny, which, so this first children's book she wrote came about because she told the kids, the three of them, her daughter, Emma, and her two stepkids, Jenny and Geoff, that they, like, had to keep their rooms clean. And if they did, they would get a reward. And if they didn't, they would get a penalty. And they were like, all right, but you have to participate too. She was like, what do I have to do? And they were like, you have to stop cursing so much. (laughs) She was like, oh, oh, didn't realize I was, okay. And in the interviews, she's like, I (laughs) really did not know I was doing it. And I also lost immediately. And her penalty was to write a story for her stepdaughter, Jenny, which is how, how she got into writing kids' books. So that's what she's writing while they're sitting around in their living room writing together. So they'd write, to get, write all day, sharing that same creative space, but still individually working. And then they'd read each other what they'd written at the end of the day. And that, that is a creative dream, to be able to create and write with somebody else there but you're still doing your own work and it's somebody you love. That kind of trust and level of comfort with someone is an amazing thing to experience. I mean, sharing that creative experience and having someone who's interested in your work 
and whose work you're interested in is like you can't value that enough no and to be able to collaborate with them and and have somebody who's really interested in hearing about what you're working on that's great like it oh it makes my day when one of my friends wants to hear about the podcast episode that i'm working on that goes back to people appreciating your art you know you're putting we're having an honest conversation right now just about what this meant to us and it's it's just so great to be able to share this with people who i care about yeah and and to be able to share it with the like the wider world like who knows who else has read this book who knows who else will stumble upon this podcast and maybe yeah. has this book but like now goes and reads it like that's so cool another thing i very strongly related to was her discussion about visas they went on holiday to switzerland i think at christmas for a couple years in a row and then they decided they wanted to have a permanent residence there and, and buy some property so they didn't have to rent and she talks about she doesn't go super detailed into the visa discussion but the visa that they got requires them to live in switzerland for a certain amount of time during the year in order to maintain that residency and that visa struggle as somebody who i'm an american who lives in the uk and i am working on my own visa stuff right now and that's oh i feel that but like sometimes she'd drop off her kids at school in september and be like okay see you at new year's right which again that goes back to our work-life balance discussion i can't imagine being a mother and a working actor as well as trying to maintain a dual citizenship she talks about how you know she had tons of stuff to do in the weeks leading up to her her departures for Switzerland. And I think that, um, you know, her ability to do her children's books, to write her children's books, gave her a little bit of flexibility in her art yeah. because it allowed her to have an income and allowed her to be creative, but to be able to do that on a plane or in Switzerland rather than on a stage. You know, I love that. I love that she discusses, you know, she is so honest with how she's like, I had a million things to do. I didn't have an assistant. Her oldest daughter, Emma, you know, was a teenager or whatever. And when she has younger children and this older teenager daughter, she really relies on her heavily. Emma was her rock throughout this entire book, throughout her entire Hollywood career, throughout um, this back and forth so much, you know, she always feels bad that it was such upheaval. She just has such that conscientiousness about being a mother and trying to make sure that her kids get everything they need, especially under so much scrutiny. Yeah. So you said something there about her younger children. She and Blake tried to conceive a child and weren't having any success. They decided to adopt and they adopted two children from Vietnam, one right after the other, Amelia and Joanna. Um, and just like, I, you got to, I got to that part of the book and I was like, ma'am, are you not busy enough to have more children? So during the Vietnam War, Julie was very moved by the plight of orphaned children. And she went on a charitable volunteer trip to Vietnam as kind of like as an ambassador to see the conditions and to kind of get a feel for what these children were experiencing. And they had nothing. And yet, she writes about how floored she is, their spirit. They are just unbreakable, these children. So this trip to Vietnam was with Operation California to Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. 
And then the founder of the organization, Richard Walden, invited Julie to join them. And she wasn't sure if it was the right move, but she hoped it would help her advocacy work. And she also wanted to see Vietnam because now she had two Vietnamese children. You know, and she said she felt if they chose to visit the country themselves one day, they'd be better, she'd be better prepared to help them do that. It was in 1982 that they went to these countries. And they started in uh, Bangkok with layovers in Tokyo and Hong Kong. Um, and she was traveling with a couple people, Tony Adams, Richard Walden, um, Glenn Herman, um, and then a social worker from Thailand who was helping with the refugees. She was talking about just complete squalor, terrible living conditions. And she, she goes through a series of diary entries to kind of log her trip. Most of the part of this book about this trip is told in her diary entries, which I think is really powerful. I just cried through all of those chapters. Absolutely. I mean, and they are so honest and to the point, her short little things. You know, she goes to the airport in Saigon. They're going there on the one flight in and out per week. Okay. So she said that she had mixed feelings because Amelia and Joanna, when they were coming over to America, they were once on that that airfield. And she's trying to think, you know, there must have been so much army equipment and just chaos. And she's like experiencing their little travels, you know, for herself. And it is just, oh, it is so touching. They tried to give the kids gifts and supplies and healthcare and equipment. And she visits this orphanage, a children's hospital, and it's packed with desperately ill children. Yeah, she, she talks about there are, there are some kids with so many problems that it made others with only one problem seem like the lucky ones. Like they, they're all sleeping on wooden slats, not enough cots. Not enough to, to be educated or entertained or even barely taken care of. There are only two or three nuns, sisters who, who help. And yeah. she says they're saints. You know, disease spreads so quickly they can barely catch up. She then says, it, I feel guilty about having to leave. As I write this tonight, it's horrible to know that those children are all still there on their hard cots and that, you know, these children are one day closer to death. And she, she talks about how much she's so grateful to be able to have her children with her and be able to give them a chance at a different life. You know, you can tell she's thinking the entire time, if only I could save them all, <laughs> which I totally understand. <laughs> I know um, you do. I do. I always want to save everybody. But she, you know, it's incredible how she talks about it. And they, they visit um, a refugee camp and they just go to different, they went to four orphanages and oh my gosh, it is, this whole chapter is just heartbreaking. Truly heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah. She really learned so much. Then her summary of it was, um, the most important thing I've learned is that the simplest of all, people are just people, no matter their politics, their skin color, or where they live. There is no difference in our humanity, only in our circumstances. I was straight up about to read that quote, so I'm glad oh, that we're good. on the same page as always. <laughs> <laughs> as always. Oh, what a great summary of her trip there. Just really yeah. touching. And still so relevant today. Every time I leave the house, I remember how many homeless people I've seen in London. Yes. I'm like, oh my God, how is there such a huge difference? How is there such a huge difference in people's circumstances? Right. Her activism, 
spoke to me uh, on a really deep level. Um, you know, she talks about as soon as she got back from her trip to Southeast Asia, she got a call about the Amer Asian Immigration Act, which was an attempt to provide a path for the thousands of Asian-born children of American servicemen to immigrate to the United States, basically saving more children like Amelia and Joanna. So she's not sure if she can do anything, but you know, she starts calling. Someone asks her to call the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, and to kind of advocate for this bill. And so she does, and she gets passed around to a bunch of different politicians, and she thinks she's just being given the runaround, but she gives her pitch every time. And what she doesn't realize is she talks to all these people about uh, either aides or staffers for these, these um, congressmen, and she actually is, she, she says she's trying to do something, anything to help. And they voted on this bill at the, right at the end of the day, and that they said that her call made the difference in passing this bill. The bill had, in fact, come to the floor, been passed, and it's now on its way to the White House from President Reagan's signature. And they said that her advocacy gave it the extra push it needed. And, I mean, just that just shows you the power that one person can have in influencing good for so many others. I mean, that opened a whole door for children like Amelia and Joanna. And I think, like, in a time when it's so easy to feel disillusioned with politics and with the government, like, that's a good thing to remember. Like, no, the system is not perfect, but there are still ways to make a positive difference working in the system. Right, absolutely. Just because she was in Hollywood doesn't mean that she just got to sit back and be rich and lazy. You know, she, she was advocating, actively trying to make life better for children who would not have otherwise gotten a chance. And, you know, like Angelina Jolie and adopting her children from different countries or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, people like that, Sandra Bullock, people who really have tried to help these children in their own personal ways and to use their platforms and their wealth for good. That sort of activism is just so important to give back yeah. when you can. If you're, if you're given that kind of sway with your voice, you better use it for good. Oh, you better use it for good. Better use it for good. Oh, you don't need to change everybody's life. You can affect the people right. around you and that'll spread. I think that's, that goes into the am I good enough question is like, you make a positive difference to the people around you. You don't need to be changing the world, quote unquote, because you are changing the world for the people for whom you're a part of life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's the best part about it. So uh, it's a good book. We both cried. We suggest you read it. It's good. It's good quarantine reading. I sat in the garden and read it in about a day and a half. So she gives one last piece of advice to young actors. Uh, and I'll leave this as my parting, my parting words. <laughs> Learn your craft, do your homework. Opportunity will come along when you least expect it, as it did for me. You may not even recognize it at the time. Your job is to be as ready as possible when that good fortune comes your way. She says, to be given the gift of song and to recognize that it was a gift, to have been mentored by giants who taught, influenced, and shaped me, to have gained resilience from hard work, to have loved and been loved, and to have sometimes felt an angel on my shoulder, a reassuring presence that helped center and guide me when I needed it most. Actually, that's more than luck. I am profoundly blessed. Those are excellent last words. Thanks for 
suggesting this book and then coming to talk to me about it. What a delight to see your face on this Zoom call. <laughs> what a delight to see your face and to hear your voice and discuss this lovely book. Yeah. And then have it preserved forever on the internet. I will call you probably tomorrow. <laughs> Please do. Please okay. do. All right. Bye, love. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you have thoughts or comments or anything you want to share, give us an email at and then she said pod at gmail.com. And uh, subscribe, review, send out the word, share it with your friends, anybody you think might be interested. And uh, I hope you tune in next time for whatever we talk about next. Should there be a goodbye at the end of that? Bye.